This episode is brought to you by Fishwielder by J.R.R.R. Jim Hardison. 1,002 years after a cataclysmic showdown, legendary depressed barbarian Thoral Mighty Fist is hoping to get himself killed on one last adventure when he stumbles onto a sinister plot. Together with his best friend Brad the Talking Koi Fish and his noble steed Warlord Horse, they set out to battle the Heartless One, leader of the Dark Brotherhood of the Bad Religion, to find the pudding of power and save the people of Grome. The first in a funny fantasy trilogy that author Pierce Anthony calls One Wild Romp, Fishwielder by Jim Hardison. An epically silly, epic fantasy of epic proportions. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, and Kobo from Fiery Seas Publishing. Visit fishwielder.com to pick up your copy today. That's fishwielder.com. Fishwielder by Jim Hardison. One pudding. To rule them all. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings Podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyard. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings Podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward Hi, I'm Peter V. Brett, author of the Demon Cycle series, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. The Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. I'm Philip Overby. Our guest today is the international best-selling author of the Demon Cycle series of novels, including The Warded Man, The Desert Spear, The Daylight War, The Skull Throne, and the concluding volume, The Core, selling over two and a half million books in 25 languages worldwide. He's also penned a handful of companion novellas for the series, and he drops by the podcast today to talk about the latest standalone, Baron, the final novella in the Demon Cycle series. When he's not writing about demons and such, he spends time with his wife and daughters in Manhattan, practicing the fine art of dad foo. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Peter V. Brett to the show. Pete, thanks for dropping by. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We are honored and thrilled that you would acquiesce to our request. Come down from your lofty throne of writing and chat with us about your awesome book series today and your new standalone novella, Baron. So it's great to have you on the program today. Now, you've got the Demon Cycle series complete. All five books are out. All the novellas are out. What is it like now when you hold those books in your hand? What's what's the feeling that you have of, of are, are, do you feel completed? Do you feel full or, or whole? What, what do you feel inside now that that, that cycle is complete? Uh, I mean, it's 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 been such a long trip. Uh, like I started writing these books in 1999. Um, I didn't actually sell anything until 2007. So that first book took me about seven years to write. And that was seven years of world building and rewrites and and banging my head against the wall and not really thinking that I would ever go anywhere with it. And then you add another uh, 11 years after that before the final book came out. So it's it's been like this amazing long mountain climb. And like I many times along the way, I like didn't know if I'd ever make it to the top. 
And so then, you know, you get there and there's this amazing sense of accomplishment and this amazing view. And then suddenly you're looking at all these other mountains and like realizing that there's still a lot of climbing ahead. But it's, it's been fantastic. The, the Demon Cycle, uh, probably uh, in excess of two million words, uh, if you combine all the books and novellas. And so it, it's been a really long trip. But what's been so gratifying and satisfying to me is that the ending to the series that I had planned I don't know, 15 years ago, came to fruition pretty much exactly as I envisioned it all that time ago, wow. which, which really left me feeling like I'd been on the right course the whole time, um, which was good because, you know, somewhere halfway through the journey, you never really know if you're going to hit that mark at the end. So, yeah, you've got uh, all five books out now, and then you've got these uh, standalone novellas to complement the series. So let's dive in and talk about Baron. Now, is this the final, last novella within this uh, original Demon Cycle series? I, I mean, for the moment, it is. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing about the novellas is, is that they uh, really allow me to take a deep dive into supporting cast characters from the series. Uh, a lot of times when you're writing characters, you will create a backstory for them that, uh, you know, gives them three dimensions and gives them depth and gives them motivation. But you don't really have time to fully explore that story. So you just sort of hint at it to get a sense of who that character is. And, and uh, you don't really get to, to follow that path and see where it leads because you're dealing with your main characters and their quest or, or what have you. And so along the way, I keep coming up with these little stories that don't fit in the novels, but that I'm really excited to write and really excited to work on. And so um, the first two were starring my main character from the series, Arlen Bales, who there were a couple of periods in his life that were glossed over in the books, you know, where I would jump, you know, in between one section of the book and the next, I would jump a few years and I'd put him in a different place with the assumption being that he had a bunch of adventures during that time. And sometimes I would have, a, have like really cool ideas for stuff that would have happened during those years that just would have upset the pacing of the novels. And so uh, the first two novellas were stories like that. The third novella, uh, Messenger's Legacy, I had created a new character for the series, Briar Damage, also known as Mudboy, who is in uh, The Skull Throne and the Core. And I had started writing his backstory and, and meant to include that in the third book, The Daylight War. But his backstory just got so big and so exciting that I was worried that it was going to take away from the direction I wanted that novel to take. Um, it was starting to, to eat up too much space and it's starting to take the plot in a different direction. And so I cut that out and then made that into its own novella, which I think reads as a very good companion book. Like if you read Messenger's Legacy right before you read The Skull Throne, I think that it adds a lot to that story. And the same thing with Baron. Baron takes place in Tibbetts Brook, which is where the entire Demon Cycle series begins. It's sort of this small, very isolated town where the main character uh, grows up and then sort of runs away from home. But I had established a whole cast of characters there, and there are a few very significant, you know, adventures that occur in that setting. And so all of those characters, like, like there are a few of them that I really wanted to explore more. And one of them, uh, Celia Barron, who's the speaker for Tibbetts Brook, was someone who from the very beginning, she appears on page three of the, of the first book, The Warded Man. From the very beginning, I had a big story about her that I wanted to tell, and I meant to do it in the novels, but again, that was a story that would have sort of taken the pacing and taken the plot away from where it needed to be, which was sort of elsewhere in the world. So I saved it for years. And now that the series is done, 
uh, I'm finally able to tell that story uh, in its own independent way. So it, it ties directly in to the last book in the series, The Core. It occurs uh, at the same time, but it also occurs 50 years before. It sort of layers back and forth to, to tell the history of this character um, and some really exciting adventures uh, that she's had and why there's so much animosity in this small town. And it layers back and forth to, to give a sort of conclusion to this small, isolated area that didn't get to be part of the big, epic conclusion of the of the series in the rest of the world but i've also designed all of these novellas that you can read them independently of the the main series so if you're someone who's a fan of my books you can read the novellas and i think that they add a lot of depth and character and uh sometimes explain unanswered questions about the series but if you're a new reader you can pick up these books and sometimes there's a little you know section of info dump to sort of set up the world and how things work but it also is sort of a good window into what Peter Brett books are all about. And uh, I will feed the reader everything they need to know about the world. And so they can sort of follow the story and just go. That was a long answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I like that you you talked about so many different characters you have in the series. It's it's interesting how you, you jump around to different people. And each person kind of has a different role in the world. Um one thing I liked about the Warded Man specifically when I first read that was that uh, everybody seemed to have their place in this very dangerous world. And not everybody was a you know fighter or whatever. You know, you had messengers and storytellers and all sorts of different kinds of people. Um, so I'm curious if you had to live in your own fantasy world, uh, which job would would you most like to do? I mean, most of them uh, involve risking getting eaten by demons. I'd yeah. probably go with, like, Baker. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I put my characters through the ringer. Uh, most of the characters face death on a nightly basis. The the warders are the, the people who draw magical symbols on homes and, and around crop fields and things like that to protect them from the demons. That's generally a pretty safe job. You do that during the day and then you retire behind the wards at night. But there's also a lot of pressure because if you screw that up, someone's going to die. And yeah. I know from fans asking me to draw wards in my books when I do signings that uh, I'm not the best warder. <laughs> <laughs> messengers uh travel from town to town and since they're uh the war the, the roads are not protected they have to sleep outside in these little circles of wards uh to protect them from demons um which are you know generally pretty effective but you have to sleep with a with a 10 to 15 foot tall monster like hammering at, at this magical shield all around you and like i don't understand how they get any sleep or manage to to do anything at all I'd probably wet myself. <laughs> um, herb gatherers are more like doctors. That seems like a lot of studying, a lot of hard work. And uh, the jongleurs, who, whose music can uh, influence demons and, and uh, affect the way they behave, uh, require you to have some musical skill, which I completely lack. Um, <laughs> I expect I would probably, uh, you know, either take a normal day job or end up in a demon's belly if I was in this world. <laughs> the, there's so many different kinds of demons. And, you know, since we're the Grim Tottings podcast, we're all about demons. Mm -hmm. So uh, could you could you maybe for people who aren't familiar with the series, uh, tell us about a few of your favorite ones? Well, so the, the demons uh, live in the core of the planet. So in this world... 
magic emanates uh, outward from the planet's core. And uh, the creatures that live underground where the magic is really hot and powerful are called corelings. But the people on the surface refer to them as demons mostly. And these creatures are able to dematerialize and rise up out of the ground, but only at night. Um, sunlight burns off magic, and sunlight will kill demons the same way it would kill, say, a vampire. So they can only come out at night. But what they do is they, they sort of dematerialize from underground and, and drift up through the ground. And they are shaped by the landscape that they imprint on. And so uh, the demons in the mountains are rock demons, and they're big and powerful, and their armor is, is like obsidian or other kinds of rock. They're probably the physically strongest of the demons. Demons that rise in the forest are wood demons, and their skin, uh, their armor looks like bark. And they, uh, if they don't move, you might not be able to distinguish them from a tree if you're walking around at night. And, uh, you know, field demons are, are sort of like hunting cats. They're very low to the ground, very fast, very powerful. And then there's flame demons, which are small and, and nimble, but can spit fire. And their fire spit can set almost anything alight. Wind demons have sort of taken on this uh, uh, pterodactyl-like form where they can fly through the air and they can swoop in and, and sort of grab prey and fly off. Um, water demons come in a lot of varieties. Uh, most commonly seen are the, the tentacle variety or the Le leviathan variety. And so depending on where you are in the world, the kinds of demons that you encounter are different. But those are the drone casts. Those are the, the sort of neuter worker demons that serve the demon hive. There are other more powerful demons that are introduced as the series goes along. Uh, mimic demons can uh, take any shape they want, and so as long as they've encountered something before, they can take its shape. And so if they, if a mimic demon follows you around and learns your name and like learns who your friends are, they can take the shape of one of your friends and, and try and lure you into walking outside of the wards of protection so it can get at you. Or it could turn into an animal or something and you don't think that, you know, to convince you to let your guard down. Um, and then there are the mind demons, which are the, the sort of princes of the demon hive, which are genius intelligence. They're, they're generally physically kind of frail, but they have vast magical powers uh, that offset that. And they can read and control minds like an X-Men telepath. So you, you got a lot of cool sounding demons there. Are there any demons that like you started writing about and like, oh, that's kind of shitty. I don't want to use that one. Uh, I mean, there are ones that I haven't introduced yet. Like, I, I sort of have a list of demons from different terrain that, that I just sort of never really got around to using. Or And, and each book, I try and introduce new ones. Some are, are, are taken more seriously than others. Um, the, the river demons look like giant frogs, uh, which, which uh, <laughs> has drawn a, a little bit of uh, uh, amusement until they, try, until they swallow you whole. So, uh, like with each book, I try and I try and keep it keep keep it new and keep it fresh. Um, mm -hmm. The world's a big place, and so I can have sort of an infinite number of of demon types. Now, something similar uh, to your setting, as well as others like um, Steven Erickson and R. Scott Baker, is this kind of started off as an RPG game setting. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, I was working on this 
the first book, The Warded Man, um, it was called The Painted Man at the time. That's the title it was released under in the UK. Um, and so I had done a lot of this world building and I was sort of working on the story to occur in the setting when um, Wizards of the Coast announced that they were having like a create a new fantasy setting contest. And so I, I sort of rejiggered all of my world building into, uh, you know, a D&D style source book um, and submitted it to the contest. Um, didn't win. Uh, Lame. But yeah, no, they're, they're lost. <laughs> it worked out for me that it didn't win. Um, because frankly, I don't remember who did win, which means that like whatever setting that was didn't really uh, uh, enter the hearts and minds of the, the D&D world. Um, but I was a big D&D fan in college. Um, it was something that, was, that uh, I attribute quite a bit to my writing is, is the storytelling skills that I learned DMing and, and um, running games and writing plots and, and keeping a group of players entertained, finding out what excited them and kept them interested and what bored the hell out of them so that I could sort of adjust fire as I went. Anyone who's ever GM'd an RPG knows that, like, you write this elaborate story that, you know, will take the players from place to place and, and, and uh, uh, eventually get them to the, to the lair of the, the boss that you want them to fight. And all they need to do to start off is have a conversation with this innkeeper. And instead, they you kill the innkeeper and rob him. <laughs> and, and then you have to figure out how to get them back on track. And that's the sort of thing that I think a writer needs to know how to do. Because you always need to be ready to, to change course if your story is getting boring. Are you like D&D ever released like a kill the innkeeper module or that's the only purpose is just kill the innkeeper? <laughs> then you just throw out the rest of the stuff. Yeah, it would be funny if the, if the innkeeper ended up just being the boss fight right there. Um, <laughs> yeah, there he is. Slaughters everyone while they're first level because they didn't go on the quest. Are you still gaming these days or with dad responsibilities is time an issue i mean it, time is an issue and my gaming buddies have sort of spread far and wide um i still do it semi-professionally so like i'm going to gamehole con in madison wisconsin in november and i'll be doing some live stream gaming with like matt mercer and i'll be doing uh a couple of charity games charity D games at the at the con and I'll do things like that. You know, I'll run a game at, at one of Power Office's World Builders events or something like that. So I still do it now and then, but I, I don't have the, the time or the roster of players anymore to sort of do it on the reg. Yeah. Which I feel bad about, but it's also one of the things about gaming for me is that, it, that when I was gaming regularly, I wasn't really writing because all of that creative energy was going to writing plots for the game, designing characters for the game, emailing players and talking to them about, you know, like their characters and, and what they wanted and where they wanted it to go. And, and that was all great and gratifying and I really enjoyed it, but I was using all of my creative energy for a group of five rather than using all my creative energy to, to create something independent that like, you know, now uh, hundreds of thousands of people can enjoy. I think like once I stopped gaming, which I stopped mostly because like we all graduated college and got jobs and moved further and further away and got busy. But that was when I started writing on the regular again. And that was what led to me having this career. And uh, speaking of buddies, uh, Mike Cole, 
dropped hmm. by the podcast before. You guys are BFF IRL, if I'm not mistaken. Mike and I have been friends since high school, uh, senior year of high school, 1991. To be fair, we had, we met in high school. Okay. But then when we went away to college, I ran into him, you know, probably the first week at my new college. Um, and I was like, oh, hey, right, we know each other. And then um, we've ended up being best friends ever since. So uh, it's been, I think, 27 years now. Um, and he's one of the few people that really like, you know, sort of has remained in my everyday life for that entire time. Um, so someone like that is rare and wonderful. And the fact that we've ended up having very similar career paths is also just fantastic because it gives me somebody to talk to about stuff that I can't really talk to <laughs> some friends about. Yeah, he's a he's a fan of yours. He had plenty of plenty of nice things to say about uh, Peter V. Brett for folks who want to go into the podcast archive and check out that interview with Mike Cole. We talked about his novella as well. People can check that out. But he had plenty of nice things to say about his BFF, Peter V. Brett. Do you have anything nice that you'd want to say about Mike Cole while while you're on the line with us today? I mean, I mean, you're probably better off going and listening to Mike's podcast because he is far more witty and entertaining than I am. Um, Mike is a, is a is a brilliant guy. He's a you know three time war veteran. Um, he was a, a lieutenant in the in the Coast Guard, Coast Guard Reserve. He does uh, cybersecurity, and like he's sort of respected highly in that field. And he's also a historian. He's written um, you know hard history books like about ancient warfare. And then he also writes these amazing novels. His um, Shadow Ops series uh, is about sort of modern day military if magic entered back into the world and the United States government dealt with magic by immediately uh, making, it, making it illegal to use unless you're using it for military purposes and then drafting everyone who can do it. And so he sort of brings his like personal knowledge of warfare and the military into that. Um, but with this amazing magical twist, those books are fantastic. And then his new series, um, which is a series of novellas beginning with the armored saint and the second one, the queen of queen of crows just came out last week. Um, those books are set in sort of like, um, medieval Europe, but, uh, uh, I think more, not your traditional, like Tolkien medieval Europe. Um, it's a, it's a Europe that has been sort of taken over by an inquisition um, against magic for very good reasons. Um, in, in that world, use of magic can open gateways that can let devils into the world and monsters into the world. Um, but of course, uh, years of that rule has, has uh, uh, created an oppressive culture where the, where the um, religious authorities have sort of used that to take advantage of people. And so it's a really rich, amazing setting and um, his protagonists, Protagonist Helwaz uh, is this sort of young girl in power armor, and it's just it's amazing read. I can't say enough good things about Mike. Uh, he and I have been supporting each other's writing for so long. Um, he beta reads all my stuff. I beta read his stuff. There's a lot of sort of my edit notes and comments in his work and a lot of his edit notes and comments in my work. I don't think I'd be doing this w without him. That's great. And he's jacked mm -hmm. to the gills. Yeah. Too. He's yeah, he's in way better shape than I am. <laughs> We always talk about how, you know, all the uh, people that come on our show could, like, kick our asses in real life. And yeah. Mike's at the top of the list. I think. <laughs> but he never would. You know, this is the thing. Mike, Mike only uses violence uh, when he's been uh, 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 licensed and authorized to for the protection <laughs> of uh, other people. 
Um, yeah, he's he's a paladin in real life uh, as well as his favorite character to play. So he told us, you know, he's like a real life paladin uh, defending the honor of others and such. And it's and it's true. Look, I've I've been in in uh, bars and social settings and everywhere else with him for 27 years. And look, if somebody's getting harassed, he will put himself in between those, you know, the the harassed and the harasser moments, you know, in an instant. Uh, but I've never seen him pick a fight with anybody, and that's that's a good thing for someone like that. So you have a, you know, Mike is the paladin, and you've put on your about page a, a Dungeons and Dragons character sheet, which I think is a a very cool way to highlight information about yourself. Your class is a bard. Uh, yeah, but you have... notice I'm pretty low level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have some uh, pretty spectacular abilities, um, sarcasm and gas. Uh, in addition to your specialization with the katana, what are some other of your favorite parts about your your profile? Uh, I mean, this, the profiles are, are sort of like a mix of uh, the top of it is um, I don't know if you guys comic book fans. Yeah, in, in general, as a no. <laughs> um, back when I was a kid reading Marvel comics, um, there was this book called um, Marvel Universe. And basically, it was just an encyclopedia of everyone who's anyone in the Marvel Universe. And they would have this sort of um, breakdown with like, you know, okay, what's what's their real name? What's their superhero name? What's what are their physical uh, attributes? You know, how tall are they? How you know, what do they weigh? Like um, and like where they're from and and. it would have group affiliations like, oh, you know, Spider-Man, he's usually independent, but sometimes he's in the Avengers or whatever. And like what their powers are and everything. And so the top of my about page on my website is a Marvel Universe style character sheet that sort of breaks me down in superhero terms. My group affiliations are all of my publishers, um, which I should probably update at some point. I think I've added a few since the last time I did it. And then... Uh, <laughs> For for my skills and powers, obviously I don't have any super superpowers. My skills are mostly just lying and breaking your heart. Um, but I think I've mastered those pretty well. And then on the bottom of that, I took one of my old D and D character sheets, which is probably from like you know, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons like 2.0, um, mm-hmm. and sort of filled in all of my stats as I you know as honestly as I felt I could. So, you know, slightly higher dex than strength, uh, reasonable constitution, mid-level intelligence, you know, like I sort of based my intelligence on my, like my SAT scores, which, you know, like higher than average. Um, I probably overdid it on the charisma, but those are really fun to do. And it was a fun way to sort of fill in a little bit about myself on the website. But this was all at the very beginning of my career when I like was treating it all like a big joke, you know, like I didn't really expect uh, my writing career to go anywhere like I had you know I'd sold the series and and like I figured maybe I would get out you know be on a bookshelf and be able to point to the bookshelf and be like oh that's me and you know like I took some of the advance money and I used it to build this website but like it was mostly tongue-in-cheek because I didn't really expect things to go anywhere and then now 10 years later people are actually reading it and taking it seriously <laughs> yeah the website is great it's a uh, Peter V. Brett dot com and uh lots of stuff on there lots of fan art um all about your books all about you interviews all sorts of great stuff there so folks want to check out more about peter vast swaths of information at petervbrett.com 
going back to novellas, it's something we've talked about on the show um, several times uh, in relation to uh, the burgeoning trend of more novellas and tour.com kind of championing, championing mm. the novella more and more. Um, and, you know, in the past, poetry was considered the highest art form that you could be as a writer. And, of course, uh, nothing to knock poets or anything, but n- the novels overtook that eventually. Do you feel like at any point, considering the the way people have less and less time to read, do you, do you think the novella will ever take over where the novel sits today? I, I don't think that I would go that far. Um, I do think that novellas gained strength over the last few years for a very good reason. Um, when I first wrote The Great Bazaar, that was the first novella in my series. I wrote it mostly because I had this story that didn't fit into the novel that I really wanted to write. And so I sort of wrote it and it took the form that it took, which was longer than a short story, shorter than a novel. It was actually, it's actually a pretty short even by novella terms, it's maybe 17,000 words. And I could not give that story away. I mean, this was at the beginning of my career. Nobody had really heard of me. My first book was out and it was doing well, but it was still really early on. And the fantasy like short story magazines didn't want to touch it because it was A, tied into a series of novels and B, longer than the stories that they normally publish. Um, Mm. And my regular publishers didn't want to touch it because the print costs of printing a a novella were were pretty high against the returns. They didn't think that they could charge enough money to make it worth doing all of the printing and the distributing, you know, for such a short story. And so uh, Random House didn't want it. Um, The the fantasy fiction books uh, places didn't want it. And then I was contacted by Subterranean Press, uh, which is a, a small press uh based in um detroit and they create these sort of very beautiful collectible small books sometimes they do uh uh, special editions of of very popular novels but they also like to to take authors who are sort of up and coming and ask them to write something independent for them and these are usually short books that have you know, very high production value and like beautiful covers and beautiful design. And they're meant to be more collector's items than, than mass market things. And they do one print run and that's it. And so if you buy a book from them, uh, odds are it's never going to appear again in that form. And so, you know, it's sort of a collectible thing. They approached me and asked me if I would write a story for them. And I said, oh, well, I, you know, it just so happens I have this story, The Great Bazaar, that, you know, I've been looking for a home for. And so, so they asked me to send it to them and they, uh, they loved it. And they made it into this beautiful little hardcover book and they printed a thousand copies of them because at the time, you know, they didn't know what the market would bear. Um, And those copies all got snatched up. And as my popularity grew, they became collector's items. I've seen a signed version of one of those books selling for $1,200 now Damn! Um, because they only made a thousand of them, you know. But around that time, I was starting to see more and more authors at first through subterranean press doing these sort of novella length books but then i think people were were looking at it both as in in the way i look at it where it's like okay i want to tell more stories within the setting of my series that sort of don't fit the the regular novel format mm-hmm. um kevin hearn is a good example of that he uh has a long series of novellas that tie into his iron druid books of just sort of side stories and adventures that don't really 
fit into the novels. And then uh, Brian McClellan, who's a good friend of mine, is another example. Um, he really sort of likes the novella format, and he and I have talked about it quite a bit, about what the advantages to it are and how it sort of lets you do an intense deep dive into one character or sort of like an intense exploration of one or two story problems. And I think that as people were, were getting used to that format and as printing costs and techniques were changing so that you could sort of print on demand a smaller book and still uh, do it in a way that was profitable. I think those uh, really played a big part in the rise of that format. Um, I don't know that it's going to replace the novel because I still think that there's uh, there's people who want to sit down and have like sort of a really long experience with a book and a novella, you know, you can read in one or two sittings. Um, and so you're always looking for your next fix. But more and more, you're seeing major publishers like HarperCollins with my novella Baron, um, like Tor.com with uh, Mike Cole's novellas, um, and with Brian Brian McClellan's latest novella. You're seeing more and more major publishers are, are starting to see that there's a there's a really good viable market there, and there's an audience that that's interested in it, and that it's a uh, it's something that authors can do to fill in the gaps when people are waiting for them to finish a novel. I mean, it takes me two years to write one of my novels, so if I take a you know a couple of weeks off or a month off somewhere in the middle of that and write a novella and put it out, like that gives readers uh, you know reminds them I exist, gives them something <laughs> exciting to. It gives them like a little appetizer of, of my series and, you know, keeps things going while, you know, in between. And I've generally designed my novellas to be appetizers to the novels, you know, to be mm. a setup that uh, you read this and then you read the novel and, oh, wow, some of the things are tied together enough that it sort of complements each other. Yeah. So it's definitely growing in popularity and it should. And I think it ha I think we haven't seen the end of it. I think it's only going to get bigger over the next couple of years. Well, we are enjoying uh, Baron, and that is available uh, now. Uh, we dropped September 25th, so folks can buy a copy. Again, we have the yes, link brand new. in the show notes, so if folks want to check out the show notes, they can just pop over, pick up a copy of Baron, buy the rest of Peter's books, and everybody will be better at the end of the day. Speaking of books, you've got a whole new series planned. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about uh, your new deal and when folks can expect more fiction from Peter V. Brett. Uh, so... I want to reiterate that the original Demon Cycle series is done. It is finished at five books with the companion novellas, which are optional, recommended, but optional. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're a binge reader, now is the time. You can, you can pick up that first book and you can binge your way through the whole series and get to a con conclusion that is uh, satisfying and complete and, and really ends with, with a denouement that I had been planning for, for 10 years. But that said, uh, I didn't. Uh, I'm going to give you a slight spoiler I didn't entirely blow up and nuke the world at the end. Um, and so uh, there's still people alive. And uh, I set a new series in that same world that takes place 15 years later. If anybody lives from the original series, you may see them as, uh, as sort of background characters. But uh, the main characters will be new. The stories will be new. The problems will be new. And I will move very quickly from familiar territory to new places on the map. So, you know, when I was doing my world building for the series, I created this sort of big, sprawling world, and I only got to explore a, a small portion of it in the original Demon Cycle series. And so there's still a lot more that I want to get to. And so I, I've sort of created this breaking point where I've dropped the ballast from the old series, you know, like, like all of these sort of emotional baggage and everything of all of the characters that I'd built up for over the course of five 850-page novels 
uh, I sort of get to set aside all of that, who killed whose father and who has what problems and, and uh, take a whole new set of characters that are fresh and new and, and move them in a new direction. So if you're a new fan, you can read those new books without having read the old ones. But if you're an ongoing fan, you can you can pick up the new books and see some familiar faces and some familiar places and, and uh, hit the ground running. And so this, the new series of books uh, will also be a little bit shorter. So I'm hoping to write them more quickly. And I've got a three-book deal uh, with uh, Delray Books here in the U.S., with HarperCollins in the U.K. We've already signed deals for the books to be published in uh, Germany and Poland as well. The current series is published in 26 languages. I expect that most of them, once I have the books completed, will uh, buy into this too. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it. I've been working on it uh, since before I finished The Demon Cycle. I was laying the groundwork for this, and I've got this three-book series plotted out all the way to the end. And uh, I've started writing the prose now, and like I'm, I think the main character is going to be something that no one's ever seen before. Uh, and so I'm really excited for it. Uh, I can't wait to to get to share it with people. High six-figure deal. Bringing in the money. Peter Rebrett. <laughs> making it happen. Congratulations on that, man. Good stuff. And so what? Thank you. 2019 maybe would be book one? Uh, it's possible. Um, the book is due uh, midway through next year, so it really depends on how fast the publishers want to move. And so maybe out at the end of next year, or it may be the very beginning of 2020, okay. but uh, it's coming soon. Any sort of title or series title or any sort of... Uh, the first book is called The Desert Prince. Hmm. Uh, we have working titles for the other two books, but uh, we haven't agreed on them with the publisher, so I can't make any announcements about those okay. as yet. Um, and we have a... Uh, the series title, uh, again, is a, is a working title, so we haven't uh, started announcing it yet. But the first book, The Desert Prince, you can go on Amazon and reserve a copy now uh, if you want to. Uh, and I will uh, be talking about it quite a bit as we get closer to the to the launch date. Right now, I'm frantically trying to go through the, the same process that I've been through with every book, where, you know, where there's like a, a point at the beginning where you feel so excited and you got a plan and you know where you're going and everything is great. And then you get to another point where, where it sucks and you sucks and everything sucks <laughs> and... and <laughs> And then, but but I know now, having done it a few times, that that's again part of the process, and you get through the other end of that, and then it gets gets exciting again as you get closer to the ending. Um, I I have such wonderful things planned for this book, so I can't wait to to get to, to show it to people. Absolutely. Well, we are more than delighted to finally get you on the show today. Honestly, when we started this podcast, you were on our list of folks that we would love to chat with, and here we are, what four years later, and we are delighted to get you on the show today your series is concluded more great things happening for you so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today best of luck with you and your new series and thanks again for dropping by today peter yeah thanks so much for having me i would have done it long ago if i had known uh <laughs> it's been a blast and hopefully maybe uh maybe when the new book drops or something like that we can get you back on at some point and chat a little more yeah. we, we only covered about half our questions here today so i'm sure we can chat plenty more at some point so. i am happy to come back on anytime you can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grim Dark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. If you love the authors you've heard on the Grim Tidings Podcast, then you'll love Grim Dark Magazine. Interviews, articles, reviews, and the premier magazine for grimdark fiction by authors such as Mark Lawrence, R. Scott Baker, Deborah Wolf, and more. Get knee-deep in grit. Log on to grimdarkmagazine.com.